0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Let's pray, and then let's dive into Ephesians. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word to us. Lord, I just want to begin by admitting our weakness and our neediness. God, we need you. We need you to speak to us. We need you to act on our behalf. You have already spoken in your word. You have already acted on our behalf at the cross of Christ. And and here what we need you to do is to open our hearts and to help us to receive from you, the living God, through your living word. Uh, So God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would come, be present among us, speak to us, and produce changed hearts inside of us today. In Jesus name, everybody said. Amen. A couple of uh, questions again, to kind of provoke your hearts as we dive in. We'll be in Ephesians chapter four verses one through six for the third week. Um, and as we head there, to so ask this question, like, where, where is your heart today as you walked in? If you could define or describe the condition of your heart, where is it at today? Is it united? Is your heart united in a, in a like a singular focus towards Christ? Or is it disunited and running a completely different direction? Is it bound or glued together in Christ? Or is it divided, broken in half maybe, by, by, by my multiple visions of um, how to satisfy your desires? Is it full of the peace of Christ? Or is it full of turmoil? So I've kind of set these up on the screen in front of you and in, in question to just try to provoke, right? To try to evaluate where your heart was when you walked in this morning. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul says this. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So think about your calling. Think about God's call on your life to follow him and to serve him. Those, that's the twofold calling that we see all throughout Scripture. We are called to first follow Christ with a singular devotion and commitment to Him. Nothing else distracting us, or pulling us away from following Him. And at the same time, we are called in the second fold of that calling to serve Him by serving others. takes a certain kind of devotion. A certain kind of unity of heart. A certain kind of focus of our heart, right? To follow Christ and to serve Christ. And the interesting thing about this book, the Bible as a whole, is that all the way through it, throughout the different genres of writings and different authors, there's one clear thing that comes out. That God is after his glory, but he's after our hearts, right? He's in this process of giving us brand new hearts and then shaping those hearts and molding those hearts and making our hearts become more like Christ. He's, he's in the, the business of heart surgery, you could say. That's a central theme all throughout the Bible. As we come into Ephesians here, we've been studying through what Paul writes to the Ephesian church. The first three chapters all about our identity, who we are, how we are seated, who God says we are, In the next couple of chapters, he begins to talk about how we should walk then. This is who you are, now walk like it, right? And then finally, towards the end, it's stand. This is who you are, walk like it, and stand firm as you're walking like it. So we're just right on the very front edge of, how do I walk out this calling as a Christian? One of the first things he really dives into here is this, this unity of heart. It actually says in verse three that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, right? It says that in verse three. As we've been looking at this over the last few weeks, um, we've learned that we're called to be prisoners for the Lord who walk in a worthy manner, called to walk in hope-filled obedience, Christ-like character. We have dug into those things. As we look at this this week, we, we learn that we're, we're called to eagerly maintain. Think of these words eagerly, eager, passionate, ready, right? I, I think of this word eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit as we walk in the bond of peace. As so I think of this word eager, I think of this excited, passionate, joy filled, ready to rock and roll, right? I am eager to follow Jesus. Eager to maintain unity. Eager to walk in the bond of peace. Excited for that. Well, the question in my mind becomes this. Where does this unity come from? Where does this eagerness come from? I mean, when I hear Paul say we should be eager to maintain this kind of unity, the bond of the Spirit with peace, when I think about that, I kind of immediately get this vision of like you know, general standing on the side of a mountain like calling his troops, like, get your boots on, let's go, right? And I think there's probably um, some of that in this, but where does this unity come from? What, what, what is the bond or the glue that holds us together? How do we walk in peace? How do we walk this thing out? So the opposite of unity is disunity, Right? The opposite of something that is bonded is something that is divided. The opposite of peace is turmoil. So those three words, disunity, division, turmoil, those things have affected every institution from the family to the church to the government for eons, right? Ever since Cain and Abel. Ever since then, the family was broken. Prior to that, you could go back to the Garden of Eden, right? have uh, Adam and Eve. It wouldn't seem that the two of them were divided at the time, but I can tell you what happened in that moment is there became a division between them and God. Their hearts began to go this way as they saw this fruit and were like, oh, it looks so tasty, God. You don't look so good anymore. I mean, that's ultimately what happened in the Garden of Eden. every one of us struggles with walking in the kind of unity and the bond of peace that God calls us to because inside of every one of us is this tiny little thing called a heart, right? Our hearts are often disunited, divided, left in turmoil. Scriptures say that the heart can be a very wicked thing. And yet there's this other tension there that when you begin to follow Jesus, God takes out your heart of stone that was once running headlong away from God and gives you a brand new heart of flesh, which now desires after God. And so there's that tension in the Christian life in terms of walking out this kind of calling. And so as I thought through these things this week, man, I like wrote down some of these questions for myself in my journal. Like, like man, if my heart is full of disunity... If my heart is divided, if my attention is not focused on Christ, if I'm not not desiring him, if if there's no joy inside of me to follow hard after Christ, if my heart is full of turmoil instead of the presence of peace, then why? Why is that so? Why is that where my heart is in that moment? Why is it so divided? Why is it not united in singular pursuit of Christ? Why is it full of turmoil instead of peace? And what will it take? What will it take to bring unity and single-mindedness and peace to my heart. So I want to start with question number one. Why is my heart disunited, divided, and full of turmoil? And I ask that question in response to what Paul is saying here, right? When I I read the words of Scripture, I, I, I must be provoked to go on a a journey with Jesus as he speaks, right? I must begin to ask questions of my heart. I must begin to interrogate my heart like a good offensive attorney. I think you could say, it's probably not the right way of saying, it. I'm thinking offensive like football pads on, right? Rather than. So more like a prosecuting attorney. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Perfect. I need to learn to interrogate my heart more like a prosecuting attorney, more like David in the Old Testament. Why is my heart so. Downcast, right? It's David, Psalm 42, quote that all the time. I need to go there rather than defense attorney. Oh, my heart's just this way because. Right? I need to legitimately start interrogating my heart to find out what's happening in there. So I asked this question in response to what Paul says here in verse 3, right? He says, We are called to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit as we walk in the bond of peace. Obviously, three words that caught my attention. Um, is unity, and bond, and peace. And I just thought about those three words for a long time. I began to ask the Lord, why is my heart not united with you? Why is my heart not bonded to you in these moments? Why is my heart not full of peace right now? Why? Jesus, show me why. Because I don't want to trust my own answers. I need to hear from the Spirit of the living God, right? As I prayed through this question, I kept getting just different visions of seasons of my life where where I didn't walk according to the call of God on my life. Proclaiming Christ, going to church, sitting in Bible studies, hanging out with Christian friends, Seasons of my life when I didn't walk according to the call of God in my life. Seasons of my life where my lips were saying one thing but my heart was in a completely different place. Okay. Seasons where I didn't walk in a worthy manner. Periods of time when I didn't walk in hope-filled obedience. Periods of my life where I knew that under the surface my character was not so Christ like. As I prayed through those memories, man, I remembered the meaning of the word division. The word division simply means two visions. Two visions. Remember that when my heart is divided, It's divided because my heart has been captured by another vision of the good life rather than the vision of the God life that God has cast in front of me. And so my heart has become divided because there's Two visions, right? And I can't figure out which one to take. And I'm and I'm and I'm trying to, to straddle the fence and follow two visions, and therefore my heart is becoming divided, disunited, and I'm left in turmoil because I'm trying to follow a vision of the good life that God did not intend for me, right? Just tasting that fruit. And it looks so good. It looks so tasty. I can just feel the juice running down my chin, right? Like it affects all of me when I think about that vision that God didn't have for me. So my heart gets divided. Sometimes these competing visions that distract me from Jesus don't seem so bad. Like that fruit in the garden didn't look so bad. I am certain that it looked like the best fruit you've ever seen. I go to the store today and walk through the aisle and look at the fruit on the shelf and find the one that looks the best to you and let me just tell you, that fruit on that shelf pales in comparison, I'm certain, with what Adam and Eve were looking at that day in the garden. What else would cause Adam and Eve to give up the very presence of God that they had been so used to for that piece of fruit? It had to have looked good. It had to have captured everything about their emotions and their intellect and their desires. This new vision now, right? Sometimes those competing visions that distract me from Jesus don't seem so bad. And It's what can be so deceptive. It's what can be so destructive about anything that competes with the vision of Christ for you and I. Or even, think about this, it may not even feel like it's just totally competing. It might just feel like it's supplementary. Okay, like this will make things better. This will make my heart more full of joy. Like right alongside of Jesus, I can have this too that will make me better. Jesus plus something equals what? Nothing, right? Jesus plus something equals nothing, which should cause us to stop and say, hmm, is my heart united or is it divided? Is my heart bonded and glued in Christ or is it in turmoil? And if the answer is yes, then part of the other answer to the why question is simply that I have taken Jesus and said, Jesus, you're not good enough. So it's plus something else that I think will make me good enough. And here's what happens. Nothing becomes good enough because what you started with was Jesus, you're no longer good enough. I need something else to supplement you. So this is what can be so deceptive and so destructive about competing or even just deceptively supplemental visions. And this is just from my own life. I'm also a pastor, so I've known lots of people, so I have a little bit of experience there, but just from my own life, okay? Um, Relational goals become supplementary and competing. When I desire someone to love me or like me, right? I'm saying Jesus plus that is good enough for me. Uh, vocational goals. And hey, let me stop. <laughs> One of my longest struggles is fear of man. I fear people. I fear people in many different ways. Like, man, if you find out who I really am, you're not gonna love me very much. So I can. it can be really easy for me to do everything I can to like, try to get people to like me more or love me more, right? That's just me. I don't know what these relational goals look like for you, but that's just one way it works out for me, and then it becomes Jesus plus something, and guess what happens? In my spiritual life, nothing. Because my heart's divided. Now, let me just blow this up, okay? We're, we're talking about like individual hearts inside of all this. What do you think the effect of that kind of divided heart is on a family? In my parenting in my husbanding, that is a word, trust me, Um, in my pastoring, in my vocation, if my heart is divided when it comes to Jesus, what's going to happen in every other category of my life? Because I've gotten it backwards, right? So relationship goals, vocational accomplishment, not bad. Goals for my kids, something to work on in my marriage, dream for my church, financial goals. All those things can become supplementary, Jesus plus, and then I get nothing. Not bad. Those things are not bad. They're not evil in and of themselves. But when those things become ultimate things, and when those things become supplementary things to my calling to follow Jesus and to desire him above all else, what happens is those things become idolatrous things that I bow down to and worship. And my heart becomes divided by two visions. You ever experienced that? And maybe you're here now. Maybe you are experiencing this. Do you know what it's like to have a heart that is walking in disunity or division or turmoil with the lord just one point of application from psalm eighty-six, eleven, which i think is on the screen like this is a prayer that we could just pray every single day when you get up and throughout the day you tattoo this on your arm i don't care right carry it around on a note card put it in your car and pray this prayer like lord Teach me your way, O Lord. I want to walk in your truth. Unite my heart to your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm eighty six eleven. But that could just be a practical way that we could ask the Lord to unite our heart to His. My question number two is: What will it take to bring unity? What will it take to bring single mindedness? What will it take to bring peace to my heart? How do I eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit as I walk in the bond of peace? Like if I've begun to believe that my relational goals, or if, you, if you're here today, and this is where you're at, you, you've begun to think that your relational goals, your parenting goals, vocational goals, financial goals, if you've begun to think that those are either A, better, or if you're not willing to go there, and you're just here and you've begun to think that somehow those things are supplemental to Jesus, then what the issue is in your heart and what the issue is in my heart is the beliefs and the affections of my heart, okay? It's what I believe and it's what I desire. That's the issue underneath the surface. If this has happened inside of me, if this is happening inside of you, then somewhere along the lines, what you and I have done is we have made an agreement deep within our heart that Jesus alone is not enough to satisfy me. So, how does Paul speak to this then? Right? Is there anything in these verses that gives us a new vision? <coughs> Look at verses four through six. Paul says that the sure and steady foundation of my walk is the truth. I mean, we need truth to speak in to the lies we believed. Agreed? Somebody say amen. Okay. So we need truth to speak into those lies. Paul speaks into that this way. He says, There is. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Ah, I jacked it up. Let me start over again. There is one body. I read two lines at the same time, that was amazing. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. What you see in those verses is um, seven biblically and historically true statements that could be called the unity creed. So uh, my own terminology um, could be called the unity creed. But some scholars, in, in fact, um, actually point out in their writings that the early church used these seven statements. They should be on the screen in front of you. But the early church used these seven statements uh, either... Uh, from this passage, or that that these seven statements actually influenced Paul's writing of this passage. Either way, the argument goes on forever as to when. Um, Either way, these seven statements are biblical and they're historical. And what they use them for is they use them as a confession of faith, okay? So think about a confession of faith with me for a minute. A confession of faith, which then makes you a member of a church, also has a parallel confession alongside of it to confession of sin. Okay? And so a confession of sin and the confession of faith, um you could say that those historical roots is probably where we get our quote unquote sinner's prayer, okay? Um God, I am a sinner. I have sinned in these ways and I need to make a confession of faith. Lord, I need you to save me and change me. I believe in the cross of Christ, okay? So you see these two confessions historically throughout the church. And here's the thing, there there is no true repentance without a confession of sin and a confession of faith. You need both. So these seven confessions of faith here, again, I think you probably have them on your screen. Um, There is one body. There is one spirit. There is one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And from these seven statements, what we get is we get a singular vision. You get a singular vision of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Working together for the good of mankind and for their own glory, right? Here's what we believe. We believe in the unity of the Trinity, okay? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are equally, eternally united. There's no separation in God. Let that, think about that for a minute. There's no separation in God. Never has been, never will be. The same yesterday, today, and forever. They're distinct persons, yes, Father, Son, Spirit. Distinct persons, but no separation. No disunity, no division, no turmoil. As we look at this picture, these seven statements, man, when we think about the fact that the Father gives this Son at the cross willingly and joyfully to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can have a new hope, right? A new hope as we place our new faith in Christ alone. <coughs> the Spirit is the one that does the wooing, come, come, Follow Christ, come, give your life to the Father. Spirit does that work through Christ. He also establishes us as new believers, newly adopted children through baptism within the family of the church. And then then the Spirit continually forms us into the character of Christ. So you see the work of the Trinity just in that short paragraph that I just worked through. Singular vision of the Godhead doing his work for his own glory on behalf of the good of man. Can you see that vision? Can you see the Father loving you this much? Can you see the Son giving himself for you? Can you see the Spirit pursuing you with single-minded devotion? Can you see them writing your name in the Lamb's Book of Life long before the foundations of the earth were ever laid? Can you see the weight of your sin? In the midst of all this, can you see Jesus coming joyfully for you. Can you see Jesus standing here right now through his word, calling you to drop everything that you've tried to tack on as add-ons? And you see him telling you, drop those things and follow me. Like when he tried calling Peter, or did call Peter, come follow me, right? Leave it all behind. Come follow me in single-minded devotion. What kind of eagerness does that create within you? And if it doesn't create any eagerness in you, well, I pray that the Spirit of God would do that. You think about the prophets in the Old Testament too. Let's let's bounce out to the prophets in the Old Testament. Hosea. Hosea is an interesting prophet. I love this dude. There's a few things he says in his book that's uh, pretty hard. I don't know that I've ever heard a preacher preach through Hosea um, simply because some of the rough language in it. Um, I'd like to someday because I'd like to take that uh, challenge. I think it'd be kind of fun. But, um, I mean, the people of Hosea's day, man, they, and what Hosea does in, in, in all throughout his book um, is basically confronts divided hearts. That's really what, what he does. I mean, the story of Hosea is fantastic. I don't have time to go into it, it's just fantastic. Um, what he does is he he confronts divided hearts all the way through. The people of Hosea's day were trying to worship both pagan idols and the one true living God. And and so what the prophet Hosea does is he uses three colorful figures of speech. Now, to be honest, Hosea uses lots of colorful figures of speech and I'm just fighting myself and my own flesh not to go there right now because it will be unhelpful to our time together. Um, And to be honest with you, this whole section Um, didn't come from me. I found it in uh, Our Daily Bread, uh, which I know is one of Chris's favorites. And so uh, (coughs) uh, word for word, um, everything here is from Our Daily Bread back in August of 2003 or something like that. Um, Super good though. Here's what he says. Here's what Hosea says. Hosea chapter seven, verses eight through 13. Ephraim, which is Israel, mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. (coughs) Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. It's amazing what Hosea says. You guys are silly, you're without sense. That's what he's saying, right? Dang, silly, you got no sense. Get with the program. <laughs> Calling to Egypt, going to Assyria as they go. I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would, I would redeem them. I would do this. I would give them blessing, but they speak lies against me. The Israelites that uh, Hosea is talking to, and what he's saying is he's saying, I mean, you guys are like half-baked cake. Half-baked cake. Anybody like to eat half-baked cake? I mean, ugh. I mean, I either want the cake uncooked or I want it cooked well, okay? I don't know. Is anybody else with me? Anybody else like cake mix on a spoon? I don't not half not half cooked though <laughs> since you guys are like half baked cake desirable neither to god nor to the pagans but you guys are like a proud man who can't see the signs of your aging you're unaware of your spiritual decline you're blind you got no clue that's scary language hosea is using but you guys are like a senseless dove silly You're flying from one pagan nation to another in a vain quest for help. You're in danger of destroying any chance of redemption. Heavy language. Now, here's the deal. Today, as Christians, uh, we are often afflicted with the same divided heart syndrome. We believe on Jesus one day, but then we're reluctant to commit every area of our lives to him. We go to church, but we don't want to live out our faith each day if it deprives us of our worldly success or our worldly passions, the things we're pursuing, if Jesus deprives us of that, then we don't want to follow him wholeheartedly because we want both. Because underneath it all, we don't believe that God is powerful enough to satisfy our desires. Underneath it all. That's, what we, that's, that's my struggle. I'm pretty sure that's the human struggle. And here's the thing. A divided heart results in some serious consequences, right? According to Hosea. First, we don't please God or attract unbelievers to Christ. How could, How could we? What would we be actually be attracting unbelievers to? Another country club, right? The second thing is it might just take a crisis for us. It might take a crisis to show us our true spiritual decline. And then third, we live unfulfilled lives, even though we run from one worldly pleasure to the next. Seeking what only God can give us. We, we, need to, we need to pray again, like what the psalmist prays in Psalm 86 11, Teach me your ways, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Uh, go to Deuteronomy 2. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 15. Moses calls us to walk in a singular devotion to God alone. Here's what he says Hear, O Israel the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. So talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, catch that, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care. When you eat and are full, take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, <coughs> and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst. Uh, The Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. What you see in these verses that I just read to us, um, you see a reminder, a command, a promise, and a warning. A reminder, a command, a promise, and a warning. Moses reminds us that God is one. That's the reminder. God is one. He cannot be separated. He cannot be divided. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is one. No turmoil, no, no division in the Godhead. Therefore, because of that truth, we are commanded then, commanded to emulate God with our lives, our thoughts, <coughs> our words, our actions, our relationships, our homes, our families, our businesses our churches our entertainment sometimes we like to separate entertainment from our category of god right entertainment lifestyles all these things about us should should be marked by the presence of god we should love god with all of our heart mind soul strength body everything that's the picture is love god with everything you've got not just with bits and portions of it and bits and pieces of it because you've given the best part of yourself to a different vision or as Hosea would say, a different lover. So there's a promise and a warning in these verses, right? Got the reminder, got the command. The promise and the warning here is that God promises to bless our lives abundantly. He's the God who sets us free from the slavery of sin. And then he pours out blessing upon us. That's the promise. But he also warns us, don't forget. Don't forget what I've done for you. Don't chase the things that the world chases after. Don't chase after other gods, right? Now, I think the thing that happens when we read the Old Testament sometimes is we kind of disconnect, right? Like, well, I don't got no statue that I'm bowing down to. I'm not like the Israelites. I'm not as bad as they are. Can't believe they would bow down to those statues, those lifeless things, right? They can't do anything, got no power. Let me just tell you that everything that you and I chase after is no different than a lifeless statue. No different. So don't let yourself off the hook. Statues (laughs) weren't the main issue for Israel. The main issue was their divided, disunited, tumultuous hearts that were chasing the popular practices of the world that they lived in. And our world's no different. We got popular practices too. (coughs) It's a popular practice to chase after the almighty dollar. Popular practice to chase inappropriate relationships. It's a popular practice to veg out on TV all night long and never give God a piece of our time. It's a popular practice to chase vocational success. And the Lord warns us, don't follow the call of the world. That fruit might look good to you, but let me tell you, my presence is better If we follow the call of those idols in this world, what we do is we trade the blessings of God and his presence. We trade that. We surrender that. And what we invite, what you invite on your life is the righteous, wrath-filled anger of God. That's a sobering thought. That's what you invite when you trade the blessings of God and yet his son hung on the cross for us so that our disunited, divided, turmoil-filled hearts could become united and bonded together in peace. Now, in conclusion, want to conclude for us. Um, what we've been looking at is what, Paul says in verse three primarily, right? Called to walk with eagerness. One of my first questions, like, what does it look like for you and I to be eager and excited, passionate, joy-filled, ready to rock? (coughs) What's gonna produce that in us? What's, What's gonna wake our hearts up to that? Understanding that this kind of unity that we're talking about pursuing begins in the heart of every individual and then affects every institution. So I've taken a real like roots view, not a big treetop view of the church, which you could do, which we're gonna do as we move forward. But just so you know, when, when Paul talks in the rest of, of chapter four here, especially uh, in, in the next like 13 verses or so, when he starts talking about like not being ships that are tossed to and fro on every wind and wave of every doctrine, right? As we get there, as he talks about the gifts of God to the church of leaders, I mean, it begins here with individuals whose hearts are united and bonded and full of the peace of Christ. And then out of those individual lives comes the corporate family of the church. So, so as we've looked at all of these other passages and kind of pulled them in to cast this vision, if, if you're not there yet, I added one more observation Uh, from Luke uh, 15 that I thought might be helpful um, in painting the picture of the vision that I believe Jesus has for us, right? It's a story of the prodigal son. Son lives in his father's presence. He's got everything he could ever need. Everything he could ever need. One day he gets bored with his father. Father. And what this son implies when he goes to his father and he's like, yo, daddy will you give me my inheritance, please? What he implies is, man, I wish you were dead because the inheritance comes after dad dies. So to ask for inheritance early is like, do you think of being the dad and the kicking the teeth that that is? Man, and yet the dad and loves his son well, right? Loves him really well. son just wants to follow the call of the world, not the call of Jesus, not the call of God. wants to follow the call of the world, wants to chase down what he wants, even though he's got everything he needs. His father, this gracious man that he is, turns his son loose to follow his dreams. Go ahead. Here's what you want. Go do what you want to do. And we know the story, right? Uh, After melting his life down, totally melts it down, finds himself longing Desiring, dreaming again, dreaming about something new though. In the middle of the story, you guess what he's dreaming about. You might instantly jump to dreaming about going home. No, he's dreaming about eating pig slop. Wants it really bad. Things have gone from bad to worse. Stop and think about this. What, what causes you and I to dream? about eating pig slop? What causes us to eagerly pursue pig slop? What caused this kid, who had everything he could ever need, to walk away and begin dreaming about eating pig slop? What person in their right mind What person in their right mind would want to eat pig slop or even think that pig slop would look desirable in comparison to the presence of our good Father and all that he's given to us? And that's the turning point when you think about someone in their right mind. That's the turning point in the story of the prodigal son. Because here's what Jesus says in that story. When he came to himself, or you could say when he woke up, You could also say when he came to his senses, when he came back to his right mind, he remembered how good the presence of his father was. And in that moment, his son's affections were completely changed. Desires were changed. His needs became wants. His heart was united by the vision of his good father who was running down to the end of the driveway to throw his arms around him and throw a welcome feast for him. He was no longer walking in disunity. No longer walking in division, no longer walking in turmoil. His heart was changed by the vision of his dad running down that driveway to get him. I ask one last time what kind of eagerness does that produce within you? What kind of eagerness does this produce within you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called? with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. As there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called the one hope belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all things, through all and in all. Ask the question one more time. What kind of eagerness does that provoke within you? Let's pray. Hey, Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I do pray that you would take this message and take this passage and take your word by the power of your spirit. And that you would cause change in our hearts in these moments. Please help us to apply this message to our hearts Pray, God, that you would produce something that I am unable to produce, something that all of us in this room are unable to produce outside of the miraculous working of your spirit. So, Father, I pray that you would produce hearts that are united with singular focus, resting in the peace that only your presence can bring. Help us to long for you with eagerness.